Hello and welcome to the newest episode of the Minority of One podcast. So, today's topic, racial profiling, how we got here, where we are, and where we may be headed. So, today's episode, as the title would suggest, is going to be a crash course on the issue of racial profiling, where we are today, how we got here, and what the path forward may look like. Now, to begin with, we need to do what the Fraternal Order of Police doesn't want to do and actually define racial profiling. Now, not all profiling is racial profiling. For example, a lot of profiling that people like police and TSA agents do actually involves profiling based on behavior, not race. So, for example, I've been profiled for clutching my stomach at the airport before. Profiling pro tip, if a TSA agent asks if you're okay, they are not actually concerned for your well-being. Racial profiling refers to two things. One, when race is used as one of the factors in deciding who to follow, stop, question, search, etc., in situations where police or other officials are not looking for a specific person whose race is already known, and number two, when a description of a suspect mentions race, but authorities use this as a dragnet to follow, stop, question, search, etc., people who have virtually no evidence or descriptive traits tying them to the crime other than their race. This is more complicated than the first part of the definition, and we'll get into some specific cases of it, but the sort of classic hypothetical to illustrate is a scenario where someone says that they were robbed by a young black man and doesn't give any other description. So some cops just start stopping and searching dozens of random black men. So when exactly did racial profiling start? Well, if you believe Al Gore in 2000, quote, racial, prof racial profiling practically began in New Jersey, end quote. Then again, I'm not sure if Gore actually believes this or if he was just trying to score political points against his lone Democratic primary opponent, Bill Bradley, who had been a New Jersey senator. Now, setting aside the inherent dangers in trying to paint New Jersey as uniquely bad on civil rights when you're running as a former Tennessee senator, Gore's claim about New Jersey inventing racial profiling is about as accurate as his claim about inventing the internet. Instead, racial profiling began in the days of slavery itself. During slavery, it was common for unenslaved black people to be pressured or required to carry quote-unquote, free papers, essentially documentation proving that they were not runaway slaves. This practice was especially pervasive in the South, but it existed all over the country. In 1704, the colony of South Carolina enacted a law requiring the colonial militia to punish black people who were caught wandering without a quote-unquote pass from owners, giving them permission to be out on their own. Obviously, this involved massive amounts of racial profiling, since white people were not targeted for similar levels of suspicion by the militia. Thus, racial profiling by government is older than the United States itself. Even after Pennsylvania passed a gradual emancipation law, there were cases during the early 1800s of black people in Pennsylvania being held in local jails until their friends could produce documentation showing that they were not escaped slaves. In 1805, Maryland's General Assembly passed a law requiring that black people who were born unenslaved, I'm not using the word free here for obvious reasons, demonstrate their freedom in county court documents. Black people who were emancipated by owners had to obtain documents that typically explained how they had been emancipated and included physical descriptions to reduce the chances of runaway slaves using documents that had been made for other black people. Now, especially in areas 
where most black people were slaves, i.e. the South, black people who were walking around unaccompanied could expect to be stopped by whites, often members of slave patrols and or the state militias, which early on became an enforcement arm for slaveholders. If they did not produce either a pass from their owners or free papers, there would be hell to pay. While every northern state had passed anti-slavery laws by 1804, this did not end the association between racial profiling and slavery in the North. When the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was passed, it created a new impetus for local and federal police to begin stopping and questioning black people suspected of being runaway slaves. Commissioners were appointed to determine if a black person was an escaped slave or not. If they determined the black person was not a runaway slave, they got five bucks. If they determined that the black person was a runaway slave, they got ten. So they essentially got twice the payout for determining that a black person was a runaway slave as they did for determining that they were not a runaway slave. I want to quote here from a flyer that abolitionist Theodore Parker posted in Massachusetts in 1851. Quote, Caution, colored people of Boston one and all, you are hereby respectfully cautioned and advised to avoid conversing with the watchmen and police officers of Boston, for since the recent order of the mayor and aldermen, they are empowered to act as kidnappers and slave catchers, and they have already actually been employed in kidnapping, catching, and keeping slaves. Therefore, if you value your liberty and the welfare of the fugitives among you, shun them in every possible manner, so as so many hounds on the tracks of the most unfortunate of your race. Keep a sharp lookout for kidnappers and have top eye open, end quote. So what we see here is that in the antebellum era, racial profiling was something that was taking place and which people were aware of, even though the term racial profiling itself would not be used until much later. We have another reference to racial profiling without it being called that in a statement by then-Senator Henry Wilson of Massachusetts. So Henry Wilson was one of the most radical members of Congress on issues of slavery and race to be elected prior to the end of the Civil War. Uh, so Henry Wilson had been born in New Hampshire. He had moved to Massachusetts. He had built up a political career in Massachusetts. He had spoken up, or, or I can't remember if he spoke up for it, just voted for it, or both, but he had supported the legalization of interracial marriage as a member of the Massachusetts State Legislature in 1843. He had also been generally very opposed to segregation across the board. And in the early 1860s, he addressed the fact that black residents of Washington, D.C., regardless of whether or not they were actually slaves, were being subjected to a reign of terror, partly through racial profiling, that was being used to sort of enforce the Fugitive Slave Act. And this came up in the context of sort of demanding better treatment for unenslaved black residents of D.C., as well as demanding the outlawing of slavery there. So I want to read you the Wilson quote. Calling it, quote, monstrous, Wilson denounced, quote, this doctrine that color is presumed evidence of slavery, end quote. And he argued that this, quote unquote, monstrous doctrine was encouraging very racist, crooked behavior by cops in D.C., and that it was resulting in large numbers of black residents being unjustly arrested. Uh, now, this is not the first time that Wilson had touched on the issue of racial profiling. He had previously expressed concerns about the issue in the context of black sailors from places like Massachusetts being at significant risk of getting racially profiled, arrested, and potentially put into a state of slavery when the ships that they were on docked at southern ports and they faced racial profiling from authorities there. After the Civil War, 
Racial profiling continued as a sort of unnamed phenomena. Almost as soon as slavery was banned, southern states began passing quote-unquote black codes. These codes effectively barred African Americans from walking around town during the daytime. The main motivation was to give the authorities an excuse to arrest black people for vagrancy, sentence them to hard labor, and then allow white people to essentially quote-unquote buy their labor with the goal of coming as close as possible to reinstating the system of slavery without flat-out bringing it back. These codes were eventually rendered illegal after Congress intervened, but police treating black people with greater levels of suspicion continued in both the North and the South. Nor did the hiring of black cops eliminate the problem. After a brief period of hiring black cops during Reconstruction, southern towns largely abandoned the practice in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And when cities like Atlanta began hiring a few black cops again after World War II, they were largely forbidden from arresting white people. However, large northern cities like New York, Chicago, and Philly steadily became more willing to hire black cops in the first half of the 20th century, with Philadelphia being perhaps the most progressive city in that regard. This did not mean, however, that racial profiling stopped being rampant in these police departments. To the extent that black people were able to avoid being racially profiled in predominantly black neighborhoods, it was largely due to police departments not caring if crime took place in those neighborhoods, since, after all, the primary victims would be other black people. Of course, black people who ventured to other parts of town or who lived in predominantly white neighborhoods in the pre-civil civil in the pre-civil rights era were at constant risk of extra and potentially violent negative attention from police. Even during the 1960s, when complaints about police mistreating black people began gaining far more attention, the term racial profiling itself was rarely, if ever, used. John Derbyshire, an advocate of racial profiling who used to write for National Review until he got too overtly racist even for a magazine that used to run columns defending Jim Crow, found out that as late as the mid-90s, news, re news reports using the term racial profiling were still very rare. Still, what we would today call racial profiling certainly received negative attention from civil rights advocates during the 1960s. The 1965 novel and the 1967 film In the Heat of the Night begins by having white cops assume that black detective Virgil Tibbs, played by Sidney Poitier, is guilty of a murder. Their main evidence is that he's black, waiting at a train station somewhat close to where the murder took place, and has a bunch of money in his wallet. The audience is meant to understand two things, that Tibbs was targeted partly because of his race, and that this is wrong. But the term racial profiling is never uttered in the book or movie. Still, the film and the book both reflect the fact that even in the 1960s, the standard white liberal stance on what we now understand as racial profiling was that it was immoral and should end. John Ball, the author of the novel, was white and interestingly worked at one point as a reserve deputy sheriff in L.A. County. Norman Jewison, the director, Sterling Silpiant, I may have mispronounced that, the screenwriter, and Walter Marish, the producer, were all white civil rights supporters. In the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, the Supreme Court heard several cases that were relevant to, but did not directly address, racial profiling of black people. The first case, Terry v. Ohio, was decided in 1968. The case dealt with a white cop in 1963 Cleveland, Ohio, who frisked two black men that he suspected of planning a crime. The cop, Martin McFadden, found concealed handguns on the two men, John Terry and Richard Chilton. Overshadowed by the much more famous Miranda case, 
Terry v. Ohio, spent five years making its way through the courts and focused on two key civil liberties questions. One, can police legally frisk someone without probable cause, a search warrant, or witnessing a crime? Evidence that they obtained from this search admissible in court. While the Warren Court had a largely earned reputation for being liberal on policing and criminal justice issues, the judges ruled 8-1 to one in favor of Officer Terry. The lone judge to dissent was William Douglas. Douglas had started off his time on the court, agreeing with some frighteningly pro-government rulings, such as the one upholding Japanese-American internment, probably in large part because he thought he might receive the vice presidential spot on the Democrats' 1944 ticket. Once he was passed over for that role, Douglas began going after civil liberties violations like a buzzsaw, defending an end to segregation and supporting free speech for everyone, from schoolchildren to communists to flag burners to pornographers. He also defended birth control, abortion rights, ending the death penalty, and even some measure of gay rights that was rather liberal for the standards of the era. In his caustic dissent, Douglas argued that, quote, We hold today that the police have greater authority to make a seizure and conduct a, quote, search than a judge has to authorize such action. We have said precisely the opposite over and over again, quote, end quote. He also warned that, quote, to give the police greater power than a magistrate is to take a long step down the totalitarian path. Perhaps such a step is desirable to cope with modern forms of lawlessness, but if it is taken, it should be the deliberate choice of the people through a constitutional amendment, end quote. It should be noted that this case did not directly touch on racial profiling. As best I can tell, whether or not race played a role in the decision to frisk Terry and Chilton. McFadden never argued in court that it did, nor did the court rule here that police could racially profile black people. The ruling only dealt directly with whether, quote, reasonable suspicion, a significantly lower bar than the probable cause standard for searching a house, was enough to justify stopping and frisking someone. But in practical terms, the case had implications for the racial profiling debate. The more latitude police have to search civilians without witnessing a crime, without having probable cause, and without obtaining a warrant, the easier it would be for cops who do hold bigoted attitudes, which of course not all cops do, but some of them do, the easier it would be for those cops to racially profile black people. Indeed, liberal justice William Brennan, despite siding with the majority, feared the impact of a sweeping decision in support of stopping and frisking suspects. In a letter to Warren, he wrote that if the court's ruling was not as narrow as possible, quote, the mere fact of our affirmance in Terry will be taken by police all over the country as our license to them to carry on, indeed widely expand, present, quote, aggressive surveillance, end quote, techniques, which the press tell us are being deliberately employed in Miami, Chicago, Detroit, and other ghetto cities. This is happening, of course, in response to the crime-on-the-streets alarms being sounded in this election year in the Congress, the White House, and every governor's office. Much of what I suggest be omitted from your opinion strikes me as susceptible to being read as sounding the same note. This seems to be particularly unfortunate, since our affirmance surely does this. From here out, it becomes entirely unnecessary for police to establish probable cause to arrest to support weapons charges. An officer can move against anyone he suspects he has a weapon. An officer can move against anyone he suspects has a weapon and get a conviction if he frisks him and finds one. In this lies the terrible risk that police will conjure up suspicious circumstances and courts will, and then something is uh, redacted here, credit their versions. It will not take much of this to aggravate the already white heat resentment of ghetto Negroes against the police, and the court will become the scapegoat, end quote. The court's 1975 case, U.S. versus Brignon Ponce, on the other hand, addressed racial profiling, 
but not racial profiling of black people. In this case, the court ruled that U.S. Border Patrol agents cannot stop and question drivers solely for appearing to be of Mexican descent, with the court ruling unanimously against the federal government and border agents here. It would seem at first glance to be a victory against racial profiling. But buried within the court's ruling, written by Justice Lewis Powell, was this caveat, quote, The likelihood that any given person of Mexican ancestry is an alien is high enough to make Mexican appearance a relevant factor, but standing alone, it does not justify stopping all Mexican Americans to ask if they are aliens. What this meant, essentially, was that the court had declared racial profiling of Mexican people along the U.S.-Mexico border legal as long as being Hispanic was not the sole reason for the person being targeted. There are some major problems with this formulation. For one thing, as Powell acknowledged, even in the border area, only a minority of Hispanics were and are here illegally. For another, it has been documented that people from as far away as Europe and Asia have in some cases traveled to Mexico and then attempted to cross the border into the U.S., Then, of course, there is the fact that once it becomes clear that federal agents are paying more attention to Hispanic drivers at border checkpoints, it simply creates an incentive for people trying to cross the border illegally to try to find non-Hispanic drivers to assist them. If this ruling is considered to apply to racial profiling generally, it would mean that police have the legal authority to racially profile black people as long as being black is not the sole reason for them being profiled. For example, cops could pay special attention to young black men, black people who are in predominantly white neighborhoods after dark, black men in cars with white women, and black men wearing certain attire and driving certain kinds of cars. This, by the way, is almost always how racial profiling works. Ten years after this ruling, the Florida Department of Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles provided instructions on what sort of drivers state police should spe- on what sort of drivers state police should pay special attention to as possible drug dealers. State police were warned to be on the lookout for people driving rental cars, displaying quote scrupulous obedience to traffic laws end quote, wearing lots of gold, appearing to not quote fit the vehicle end quote, or who were members of quote unquote ethnic groups associated with the drug trade, end quote. Perhaps in part due to fearing these implications, Justice Douglas, four and a half months from retirement, concurred with the court's ruling but criticized it as too narrow, agreeing that, quote, the stopping of respondents' automobile solely because its occupants appeared to be of Mexican ancestry was a patent violation of the Fourth Amendment, End quote. Douglas went on to write, quote, I cannot agree, however, with the standard the court adopts to measure the lawfulness of the officer's actions. The court extends the suspicion test of Terry v. Ohio to the stopping of a moving automobile. I dissented from the adoption of the suspicion test in Terry, believing it an unjustified weakening of the Fourth Amendment's protection of citizens from arbitrary interference by the police. End quote. Douglas went on to lament that, quote, the fears I voiced in Terry about the weakening of the Fourth Amendment have regrettably been borne out by subsequent events. Hopes that the suspicion test might be employed only in the pursuit of violent crime, a limitation endorsed by some of its proponents, have now been dashed, as it has been applied in narcotics investigations, in apprehension of, quote, illegal, end quote, aliens, and indeed has come to be viewed as a legal construct for the regulation of of a general investigatory police power. The suspicion test has been warmly embraced by law enforcement forces and vigorously employed in the cause of crime deduction. In criminal cases, we see those for whom the initial intrusion led to the discovery of some wrongdoing, but the nature of the test permits the police to interfere as well with a multitude of law-abiding citizens whose only transgression may be a nonconformist appearance or attitude, end quote. Still, the implications of this case 
for the legality of racially profiling black people are not as cut and dry as they may appear. Since the case dealt specifically with border agents profiling along the Mexican border, essentially a niche area, essentially a niche area where the stereotype has been that the people violating immigration law are overwhelm- overwhelmingly Hispanic, and an area where most Americans will only spend a small portion of their lives if they visit at all, it is not clear that Powell's wording legally gave the cops a green light to racially profile people all over the country for all manner of suspected illegal activity. Going back to the admittedly very problematic idea that the U.S.-Mexico border was a niche area where a special dispensation for racial profiling might apply, it is not even clear what the equivalent niche area for racial profiling of black people should even be if indeed such a niche area could be argued to exist. In the 1982 U.S. v. Ross case, the Supreme Court ruled 6-3 that when police have probable cause, they do not need a warrant to perform the kind of thorough search of a car and the bags inside it that a warrant from a judge would authorize. Liberal Justice Thurgood Marshall wrote the dissent, which was joined by Brennan and, interestingly, the mostly conservative Byron White. Douglas, of course, had, rec- had retired seven years earlier and died two years earlier. Marshall wrote that, quote, The majority today not only repeals all realistic limitations on warrantless automobile searches, it repeals the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement itself by equating a police officer's estimation of probable cause with a magistrate's. The court utterly disregards the value of a neutral and detached magistrate, end quote. Marshall also pointed out that, quote, According to the majority, whenever police have probable cause to believe that contraband may be found within an automobile that they have stopped on the highway, they may search not only the automobile, but any container found inside it without obtaining a warrant. The scope of the search, we are told, is as broad as a magistrate could authorize in a warrant to search the automobile. The majority makes little attempt to justify this rule in terms of recognized Fourth Amendment values. The court simply ignores the critical function that a magistrate serves, and although the court purports to rely on the mobility of the automobile and the impracticality of obtaining a warrant, it never explains why these concerns permit the warrantless search of a container which can easily be seized and immobilized while police are obtaining a warrant, end quote. Once again, this case did not directly touch on racial profiling, and it is, and it is unlikely to me that Justice John, Justice John Paul Stevens, who wrote the majority ruling, intended to actually give the police the authority to treat black drivers with more suspicion than white drivers. That would seem to be inconsistent with what we know about Stevens' general views on race issues. Nonetheless, by giving police broad authority to search vehicles without a warrant, the court made it easier for cops who did wish to engage in racial profiling to use race as a factor for which vehicles to stop and search. In 1996, the court again danced on the edges of racial profiling with the Wren v. U.S. case. The ruling dealt directly with the case of two black drivers who, according to the Washington, D.C. vice cops who stopped them, were considered suspicious due to factors such as having temporary license plates, being young, and stopping at an intersection for an unusually long time. The cops approached the vehicle, and as the driver began speeding, the cops used the speeding as a reason to pull the car over. Once the vehicle was pulled over, it was observed that one of the men had two bags in his hands, which the police correctly deduced contained crack cocaine, which was enough to trigger an arrest. The case hinged on whether it was legal for police to execute a pretextual stop. Now, a pretextual stop refers to a situation in which police suspect a driver of breaking the law, but do not have adequate legal grounds to pull them over, and therefore follow the driver in hopes that they will commit some sort of traffic violation, allowing a stop and possibly vehicle search, which would have previously been potentially illegal prior to the traffic violation that police were sort of waiting for taking place. The court unanimously ruled, in effect, 
that once a traffic violation has been committed, police are free to pull the driver over, even if they are trying to catch them for an unrelated crime that they do not have adequate evidence for. As the attorneys for the arrested drivers themselves argued, there is naturally a concern that cops who do hold racist views will use protectual stops as a pretext for pulling over drivers at least partly based on race. Writing for the majority, with no judges offering a concurrence, Antonin Scalia essentially danced around the issue of racial profiling. It is probable that this was partly due to, at the very least, Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Souter, Stevens, and Kennedy almost certainly not wanting to give a green light to racial profiling, but also being reluctant to second-guess police. According to Scalia, quote, We think these cases foreclose any argument that the constitutional reasonableness of traffic stops depends on the actual motivation of the individual officers involved. We, of course, agree with petitioners that the Constitution prohibits selective enforcement of the law based on considerations such as race, but the constitutional basis for objecting to intentionally discriminatory application of laws is the Equal Protection Clause, not the Fourth Amendment. Subjective intentions play no role in ordinary probable cause Fourth Amendment analysis." End quote. In effect, Scalia opined that once a traffic violation has occurred, an officer's motivation is irrelevant, at least as it relates to the issue of unreasonable searches and seizures. But, interestingly, Scalia's quote also suggests that conservative though he was, he may have considered racial profiling unconstitutional. Furthermore, Scalia even hinted that if the arrestees had challenged the stop on 14th rather than 4th Amendment grounds and been able to demonstrate that they were racially profiled, the court might have ruled in their favor. If the Supreme Court was reluctant to, a, to directly answer the question of whether police could racially profile black people, lower courts were more willing to address the issue head-on, with mixed results. 1989, a black man named Arthur Weaver was arrested for drug trafficking at an airport in Kansas City, Missouri. The arrest was conducted by a DEA agent and two local de detectives. They singled him out for suspicion because he had flown in from Los Angeles, where many black gang members allegedly came to Kansas City from to sell drugs because he was young, male, quote, roughly dressed, end quote, carrying two bags, walking rapidly toward a taxi stand, and had black skin. Since Weaver was proven guilty of possession of cocaine with intent to distribute, the question for the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals to decide was, given that by the cop's own account, race was one factor, but not the sole factor, in the decision to stop and question Weaver, were the cop's actions illegal and potentially enough to lead to the evidence against Weaver being thrown out in court. It is unlikely that an elderly black woman who had flown in from Chicago and was, and was walking slowly would have been stopped. But it is also unlikely that someone identical to Weaver in every way except for being white would have been stopped either. And indeed, this is how racial profiling almost invariably operates. Race is one of a number of factors that lead to police investigating, stopping, questioning, and searching people. I illustrated some of the serious problems with this approach earlier, but I would like to note now that this line of argumentation would be rejected in essentially any other racial discrimination case. As Dr. Randall Kennedy wrote in 1999, quote, for example, an employer who prefers white candidates to black candidates, except black candidates with clearly superior experiences and test scores, is engaging in racial discrimination, even though race is not the only factor he considers since he is willing to select black superstars. There are, of course, different degrees of discrimination. In some cases, race is a marginal factor. In others, it is the only factor. The distinction may have a bearing on the moral or logical justification for the discrimination, but it cannot logically negate the existence of racial discrimination. Taking race into account at all means engaging in racial discrimination, end quote. 
And whether you're like me, and favor legalizing and regulating cocaine, or if you're like most Americans and want to keep it illegal, there's another crucial point to consider. If agents of the state can racially profile guilty people, they can racially profile innocent people too. The DOJ disagreed with me, arguing in favor of the cops who racially profiled Weaver. The judge, a Reagan appointee named Roger Wallman, ruled in favor of the police. Beyond the fact that a federal judge would officially sanction racial profiling 30 years after the civil rights movement, there is another disturbing aspect to this case. At around the same time that George Bush Sr. was directing the DOJ to prosecute four officers involved in the Rodney King beating, he was allowing that same DOJ to defend racial profiling in federal court. Did Bush Sr. personally sign off on this, or was he being negligent and the case slipped under his radar? It is hard to say for sure, but my sense that it is that it seems unlikely that he would have been this unaware of what U.S. attorneys in his own DOJ was, were doing. For all of his political career, Bush Sr. was essentially caught between his northern moderate tendencies and his Texas conservative election persona. It seems here that as it did in his racist 1964 Senate campaign, the Texas conservative election persona won out. There may have been an added ingredient that affected what we might call his decision to look the other way on his DOJ defending racist cops. The attorney general at the time was William Barr, who later served as one of Donald Trump's attorney generals, possibly in part because of this case. It can't be proven, but I suspect that the DOJ's stance here may have been something that Barr pushed and Bush acquiesced on. In any event, it's a little-known episode of the first Bush administration that, like the many assault allegations against him, require us to once again reevaluate his legacy. Other courts in the 1990s addressed the issue of racial profiling in various ways, creating a tangled web of contradictory case law. In 1992, a black man named Robert Wilkins, along with several family members, were stopped and searched by Maryland state police officers while returning home from a funeral. According to Wilkins, one of the reasons racial profiling persisted was because the officers who engaged in it assumed that individuals who were affected by it would let it go. Quote, There are so many people this happens to, but they don't have the time, the mental energy, or the money to seek redress, so they just let it go. They say this is just life in America. Maybe so, but we have to change it, end quote. On what would have been Abe Lincoln's 100th, 184th birthday in 1993, the ACLU of Maryland filed a federal class action lawsuit against the state police, also known as MSP. Shortly after the lawsuit, it was found that, like in Florida, the Maryland State Police's Criminal Investigations Division had issued a directive encouraging officers to pay special attention to black men with expensive cars and beepers and consider them as possible drug traffickers. With a Democratic president now in office, there would be no help for the defendants coming from the DOJ this time. In 1995, the MSP agreed to a settlement in which they agreed to collect data on stops and searches and take steps to eliminate racial profiling. In 1997, Judge Catherine Blake ruled that the MSP was continuing to partake in a, quote, pattern of practice, end quote, of racial profiling on the I-95 highway. In 1992, a white woman in Oceanta, a mostly white upstate New York town, reported that a black man had attempted to burglarize her house and that his hand had been scratched in an altercation with her. In a game of racist Cinderella, local police spent five days attempting to detain, question, and examine the hands of every black man in the Oceanta area, starting with male students at State University of Oceanta, a local college campus. Cars were pulled over, simply because a driver or passenger was a black male. 
The police also tried to keep black people from getting on a bus at, a, at the local terminal unless they agreed to be examined. Flaws in the plan are as numerous as they are obvious. For example, how did the police know that the burglar was even still in the town or that the burglar was a resident of the town? It's perfectly possible that the burglar had come in from another town, burglarized the house or attempted to burglarize it, and then left. It's also possible that the woman had misidentified the burglar's race, particularly due to not being able to get a look at his face. For example, it's possible that the burglar was dark-skinned but not African-American. It's possible, for example, that he was of Bangladeshi descent. There's also the fact that people get their hands cut in a wide variety of ways. So it's perfectly possible that the police would have been examining a black person's hand and found a cut on it that they had achieved, for example, through uh, gardening, through trying to make a sandwich, through trying to cut open a box. I, I mean, there, there are a lot of ways that a person, I mean, I, 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 I hate to point out the obvious, but there are a lot of ways that a person can get a cut on their hands besides an attempted burglary. Now, this case reflects one of the tactics that is used by both advocates and practitioners of racial profiling in order to try to defend what they do. Obviously, if police are looking for a specific suspect with a description that includes race, it would be reasonable to use race as a factor in identifying or trying to identify the suspect. But when police have a description that includes race, but little else to narrow it down, uh, such as a witness or a victim simply describing a, quote, young black man. When police have only this bare-bones description, and they use this to begin stopping, questioning, and searching random black people with little else besides their race and gender to potentially tie them to the crime, this is racial profiling. It is wrong, and as we saw with the Philando Castile murder in 2016, it can be downright deadly. A group of black people profiled in the Oceanta area sued the city government, the state government, the State University of Oceanta, and various campus officials, police departments, and officers. The Second Circuit Court for the Northern District of New York ruled in favor of racial profiling on the grounds that police had been going off a description of a specific suspect and that there was no evidence that white suspects in a similar situation would have been treated differently. This reasoning beggars belief. Are we really to assume that if the victim had described an altercation with a white male burglar, every one of the thousands of white men in the town would have been subjected to this same type of dragnet? With the support of the New York ACLU, the NAACP, and the Center for Constitutional Rights, the plaintiffs petitioned for the court to rehear the case. The petition was denied, as was a petition to have the Supreme Court take up the case. Meanwhile, popular culture continued to engage with the issue of racial profiling without putting a name to it. The show Family Matters, which is one of my favorite sitcoms, is mostly remembered as a light-hearted, largely apolitical production, where the Steve Urkel character eventually overshadowed the titular Winslow family. But in 1994, an episode of the show called Good Cop, Bad Cop featured two subplots. In one subplot, Urkel goes to the dentist, gets exposed to laughing gas, and comedy ensues. In the other subplot, the oldest Winslow child, Eddie, gets racially profiled by cops due to driving through a white neighborhood. After a failure to signal, he is handcuffed on the ground by two policemen. His father, Carl, himself a police sergeant, confronts the officers involved. I'm going to play the clip of the confrontation here. Carmine. Hey, how you doing? 
Uh, this is my partner, Jack Evans. Jack. Hey, you mind if I join you fellas? I could sure go for a curler. Actually, we were just leaving. Oh, come on, what's your hurry? Take a seat. All right, Sergeant. Uh, I'll have a curler, please, and a cup of coffee. Black. So what's this about? Well, uh, you two work the Burlington Heights District, don't you? Yeah. Did you work the evening shift last night? Yeah, that's right. Say, did you happen to pull over a 77 Dodge Monaco? The driver was a black teenager. Yeah. Ran a stop sign. It was failure to signal. Whatever. Who are you, the activist on the force? No, I'm a father on the force. And that kid was my son. Look. I can see you being upset and all, but hey, it was your kid that messed up, so don't try and take it out on me, all right? No, it's not all right. And do you know why it's not all right, Evans? Because I think that you rousted my son. No way. He fit the description of a carjacker we've been looking for. That will not cut Evans. Because I am familiar with all the outstanding carjacking bulletins, and not one suspect even remotely resembles my son. Come on, give me a break. It's dark. It's a black guy. Oh, case closed. Lock him up. You know, bottom line, your kid was in the wrong part of town. The wrong part of town? Yeah. Also, what do you say? That black kids aren't allowed in white neighborhoods. Come on. They wouldn't be there unless they were looking for trouble. And you better talk to your kid. He gave me a lot of lip. Is that why you made him get out of his car? Is that why you forced him to lie down? Is that why you cuffed him? Uh, here you go. Thank you. Look, I've had enough of this. Oh, wait a minute. I'm not finished with you yet, Evans. Uh, look, Serge, if your son had just told us he was a cop's kid, it would have been no problem. So what do you say? That you only harass black kids whose parents aren't cops. I didn't say that. You didn't have to say that. Because the point is that you two harassed my son because he's black. <laughs> you can't prove that. But I can file a complaint. And you can believe that I'm going to be sure that there is an investigation. Well, go ahead. It's our word against your kids. Bye. Just a second, Evans. You know, I really don't know how that badge stays on. Because it's pinned to slime. Just a second, son. How long have you been on the force? About a year, almost. Do you like being a cop? Yes, sir. Why? It's a very dangerous job. You put your life on the line every day and you never get credit for it. Yeah, I just thought I might make a difference, you know? Good guys against the bad guys. Well, that's a very good reason. Just one problem, son. Your partner is one of the bad guys. So there are a few things noticeable here. First of all, despite body cameras being basically non-existent at the time this episode was made, the two racist cops don't make much of an attempt to deny that they engaged in racial profiling even when confronted by someone essentially above them in the chain of command. Second, the quote-unquote carjacker description, excuse, that one of the officers uses frighteningly parallels the way in which bare-bones descriptions of black suspects have been used to profile random black people, even when the description is too vague or broad to be useful, and when there is little to no evidence that the person being profiled is actually the suspect. 
Third, the episode identifies the long-standing issue of black people being singled out for suspicion by, by virtue of being, quote, in the wrong neighborhood, with the assumption that a black person in a mostly white neighborhood, or for that matter, a white person in a mostly black neighborhood, is somehow up to no good. But what is also conspicuous throughout this episode is that the term racial profiling never actually gets used. Eddie says, and the older of the two cops basically admit, that he was stopped and cuffed due to being black and being in a white neighborhood. But they never use a formal term to describe it. It is jarring to switch back and forth between scenes like the one I just played and Urkel causing mayhem at the dentist, but I actually think it works. Blending humor and gut-wrenching issues can be an effective storytelling device that is often true to life. Now, while racial profiling was and is a problem nationwide, scandals in New Jersey were pivotal to the term entering the public consciousness and becoming a major issue of debate and discussion in presidential elections. As the war on drugs ramped up in the 1980s, state highway patrols were increasingly urged to prioritize finding vehicles that were transporting drugs, as we've seen, racial profiling predates the drug war by centuries, but by its very nature, drug enforcement created new openings for it to take place. Rather than trying to locate a specific individual, drug enforcement very often involves randomly trying to find someone who the officers think looks suspicious, stopping questioning and often searching them for narcotics and hoping they find some. If a cop isn't a bigot, Race won't be one of the reasons to target someone, although depending on a variety of factors, such as where they're assigned to patrol, a disproportionate number of the stops may still involve black people not actually carrying drugs. But for cops who do hold bigoted attitudes, this mode of enforcement becomes a sort of bonanza for bigots. And our next episode, the first of a three-part series on racial profiling, is going to look at how this aspect of the drug war finally led the term racial profiling to enter the public consciousness and become an issue that every presidential candidate might be expected to address. Until next time, I'll see, I'll see you soon. Be well, peace out, and come back for part two.